you found the Winding Roads Podcast. My name is Isaac Redinger. Each week, my guests and I talk about cars. Our own cars, our past cars, cars we're excited about, how we were bitten by the car enthusiast bug, and more. Hop in, buckle up, and join me for another great drive. Happy Monday, everyone. Welcome back. I've got John Wilkins with us today. Um, you may or may not know him, but he's a someone that's local to me. He's been to a lot of cars and coffees. Uh, we've not met in person yet, but I've seen a lot of his, his posts on Instagram with a couple of his accounts, and he seems like a really interesting person, so I thought I had to get him on here. So, John, welcome to the podcast. How are you tonight? I'm well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. I started following you because your um, your Nero 599 Instagram account is pretty interesting. You don't see many 599s, and... Um, Tell me a little bit about that. How long have you had that car? Yeah, so I actually got that this year. Um, I've always wanted a, a car with a V12 in it. And I thought, well, if I was going to have a car with a V12 engine, uh, it probably needed to be a Ferrari. Um, actually, the way that I buy my cars is really based on you know, either the engine you know, or the engineering in it. And so for okay. that one, uh, the thing that really attracted me was... It, it's the Enzo engine, right? I mean, slightly modified with the heads the way they are. They had to make it so it would fit into a front, you know, engine car. Uh, but uh, that's what really drew me to it. Okay. And you had an R8 before this? Uh, you also I, have a 911 Turbo, correct? Yeah. So right now I do have an R8 V10 Plus. Okay. I've got the uh, Ferrari 599 GTB. And then uh, it's a... 2013 uh, Porsche 911 Turbo. Um, for people who are into Porsches, it's a 997.2. It's the last of, of that run. So each one is very different, for sure. Um, like I said, I, I buy cars mostly for either the engine or whatever type of uh, interesting engineering is there. And so there you've got a pretty diverse set of cars. That 599, it's a front engine, you know, naturally aspirated V12 of course, from the Enzo. Um, and then, you know, the Audi is a, you know, it's a mid-engine, you know, V10, naturally aspirated, and the Porsche's a rear engine, you know, boosted uh, flat six. So it's a, a lot of different stuff. And the reason I got that 599 was I was working on a projection, you know, looking at, okay, well, I had a four-cylinder, a six-cylinder, an eight-cylinder, a 10-cylinder, you know, going to 12, I don't think there's going to be a 16 in my future, <laughs> although there's obviously people out there that have those, but that, that's what brought me to it. Um, so that engine was first and foremost. Uh, beyond that, uh, I've always loved the styling, the Pininfarina stuff. Um, you know, it's arguable with a lot of the, the modern cars these days that are, um, you know, effectively built in uh, computer models and wind tunnel simulations, which then are somewhat determining what the size and shape and the types of aerodynamics that are on them, you know, a lot of angular stuff, whatnot. Um, but for me, it, it kind of goes back to you know, liking uh, some of the design cues there, um, classical uh, and So Okay. So I guess touching on that, what, what's your, your automotive uh, upbringing, I guess you could say, what, when you think back, what is the first memory you have around a car? Uh, well, my first memory really was uh, 
probably in between 71 and 72 in Monte Carlo at the Formula One races. So I was actually born in Monte Carlo. Um, so that's where I started. And my father, who worked for the radio station, uh, would go down to the races, whether or not it was the F1 race or whether or not it was the rally, which happened you know, up and around the mountains and everything. And so he would, at the time, take a reel-to-reel -reel recorder, because we're talking early 1970s here, uh, as opposed to you know the digital that we enjoy today, and would actually record races and you know, do interviews and whatever else. So uh, that's, that's where it all started. Um, if there's any point in time, that would be it. Now, granted, when I was really young, I, I don't really have any recollection of, like, actual people or you know cars or anything else what i have really is a sensory memory of just the loud you know noise of the cars and the screaming of the engines and and just all the commotion that's around it you know later on uh, you know when we would pull those uh reel-to-reel -reel tapes out and stick it onto a big tape deck and listen to stuff you'd you'd hear people that you know who they are just by history of seeing television or something else and listening to what they had to say and uh it was it was really pretty interesting to go back and, and look at that stuff you know from you know, here's this thing in a you know a little package and you stick it on here and then you hear you know what goes on uh, that was pretty cool unfortunately later on in uh in life uh, my father lost all those things due to a flooded basement so i'm glad that we had the chance to listen to that stuff before it all went away but yeah we sure. don't have any, any of that okay stuff. I, w I saw that somewhere that you were from Monte Carlo and I thought, is that true? Because you don't see that very often because for the listeners, I believe this is still true, but I've heard rumors that you either have to have a certain net worth to move there or you have to be born there. Right. Is that still yeah. true? Yeah. And, and to be a, a citizen there, you've got to go back generations. Uh, which is probably the reason why I don't live there and <laughs> don't have the money. But, uh, you know, later on, it was really kind of funny. I'll just interject that when I was working for Audi, um, one of the drivers there, uh, we, we were going to talk about it and whatever else. And he lives in Monte Carlo. And he said, hey, I just realized um, you and my son were born in the same hospital, you know, <laughs> effectively on the same word. I said, well, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, indeed, that was Alan McNish. But uh, okay. the reason why I was born there, it's not because I'm, you know, two or three generations deep or my parents had any money at all. Uh, they were actually missionaries. Okay. You're like, what in the world is a missionary doing in Monte Carlo? That sounds like not much mission work going on there. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's true. My parents met uh, in Chicago at some place called the uh, Moody Bible Institute, and they took an assignment in Europe to go work for Transworld Radio. So they planted themselves, you know, in uh, Monte Carlo and proceeded to, you know, uh, my father was building a recording studio and working on the radio towers and doing all the transmission uh, type stuff. And so, you know, having access to all that and, you know, those, uh, same rights that any of the commercial radio stations had, you know, could throw that badge on the arm and go down, you know, into the pit lanes and record stuff and talk to race car drivers and, and teams and stuff. So it was very cool. 
So was he a car guy and that's why he gravitated towards that? Or is he just, it was there and he was in media, so he had to cover it? Yeah, I think he was always a, uh, you know, a guy that pursued anything that was kind of uh, speed related. So I think he started out in motor with like motorcycles and progressed into cars and whatnot. And being, of course, around that, I think there was just a natural uh, progression from there, uh, all downhill, I would say. Hmm. So, yeah, he, he started out uh, doing like dirt bikes when he lived in India. And then when he finally you know, moved to America, went to college and then uh, subsequently to Europe, uh, he was you know, always chasing something. So I, I've heard stories, of, you know, he used to do some drag racing. And then when he was in Monte Carlo for seven years, would, you know, take cars around and do the same courses that they, they did for the rallies and whatnot, scaring my mother to death. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, there was years later, you know, uh, I was only there for a few years before we moved to the United States. But in subsequent years, uh, when my father would be in Europe doing trade shows or something else, uh, I remember one time uh, I, I flew to Monte Carlo. It was probably the late 90s or something. And I met him in Monte Carlo, and uh, we proceeded to you know, just tool around town. We rent a car. Uh, I think we probably at that time had like a manual a BMW as a rental uh, out of France, and we'd go run the F1 circuit, and then we'd go do the uh, courses that they do for the rallies up in the mountains and stuff, and follow some of the um, mountain passes that you know they use in movie scenes and whatnot. So we had all kinds of fun uh, doing that stuff together. Yeah, that sounds like a great time. Nice little vacation. You're, you know, close to where it all started, but also enjoying the outer areas and things like that. Yeah, that's right. So. Yeah, it, it starts uh, pretty early for me. You know, it starts in Monte Carlo with Formula One, and uh, it just progressed from there. I imagine living in Monte Carlo when the race is happening, there's probably, because Monte Carlo is very small, and I, there's probably not anywhere you can get away from the noise from the from the race. It's, you know, a mile and a half. Uh, it's a pretty small country, right? Mm -hmm. Now, granted, in all these years, the last 50 years or so, they've been doing a great job of reclamation as, you know, they're continuing to fill in the sea and build out new things and whatever else. So it's probably much larger these days. So you yourself have gotten into racing. Um, I know you've got a couple of photos posted online from uh, when you were younger and you got into SCCA club racing. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that experience or how yeah. you got there and things like that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I've always been intrigued by cars and as a teenager and a kid driving stuff and whatnot, I, you know, always loved uh, throwing cars around and having fun as safely as I could without getting into trouble. Um, uh, it, eventually, when I hit my 20s, I, I uh, yeah, I hadn't really done anything, uh, not so much as even an autocross or anything, you know, just driving cars, enjoying them, you know, um, sometimes taking risk uh, drives out in the countryside and whatever else without people around nice uh, sweeping roads and whatnot. But in the 1990s, uh, I, I was at a, the Philadelphia Auto Show in 1999, and they had an auction uh, there. I bought a car at that auction, and that's really what started everything. Um, I bought what was... Uh, 1969 Intermechanica Italia, 
Yeah, it's something that most me. yeah that most people don't know about. But in the 1960s, there was a lot of uh, car manufacturers that were building uh, bodies in Italy and then mating them with uh, American drivetrains. So uh, that was one of the manufacturers, Intermechanic. So uh, I bought this car. It had a Ford V8 with a four-speed manual, but it looked like a Ferrari. So it had that long sweeping nose, and that's kind of where that ties back in with the 599. Hmm. I always kind of like that look. You know, whether or not it's like a Jaguar E-Type or something else, those you know, long hoods, um, front-engine cars, uh, I've always liked that design. I took it to some uh, events, uh, including some Italian. Uh, it was Italian uh, Concorso. There was a Ferrari event up in, because we're in Pennsylvania, uh, up at Poconos. And I went to a, a track day event uh, when I had that car, and then they had as part of the FCA and the other things that were there, they had some track events. And I said, you know what? I should probably learn how to actually drive properly before I hurt myself or ruin a car, <laughs> right? I think I was more concerned for the car than anything else. And so that's where that started to transition. Me being a very pragmatic person, I said, well, I, I should probably get taught how to do that rather than just try to figure this out on my own. But my approach was I wanted, you know, I felt uh, very firmly about formal education and whatnot. And it's a company called Bertel Roos. And so uh, right after that event in 1999, I signed up for a whole week of Bertel Roos uh, racing school because uh, they said, well, you come to this school, we will teach you how to actually drive properly. You know, and by the end of it, uh, we'll give you a recommendation to the SECA to get your club racing license. I said, well, this is fantastic. When I looked at SECA, it seems like, okay, you can join it, you do some autocross stuff, and then you go to these, uh, you know, the SECA has some training and whatnot. kind of wanted to take, like, the shorter route. It's like, wow, I could do this in one week, <laughs> and then I can get a recommendation to the SECA for a club racing license. So that's exactly what I did. I took their formula program. It was like a five-day course the whole week, uh, which was fun, and uh, got my recommendation thing and went and did the physical that I had to do for the SCCA license, got the license. Now, at that time, I was also doing some SCCA autocross. It got my foot wet in all that stuff, and uh, it just continued to progress from there. It's like, well, okay, so now I got a club racing license. I want to go do some racing. You know, okay, what kind of car can I do that in? Uh, yeah, we took a Honda Civic Si. It was probably like a 1992 or something. Okay. Yep, the exact year, and um, we gutted that thing and put in you know different engine trans, whatever else. Got it all set up, and then I started to do some uh, HPDEs with it. Went to places like Lime Rock Park and other tracks, but. Uh, at that stage, I was like, okay, well, what else can I do? So I started to go to other driving schools. I did formula. Let's go do something else. So then I went to Pano's, uh, which is down at Road Atlanta. I don't even I don't even know that that exists anymore, actually. But Pano's, uh, if you know anything about Pano's, they, they've done racing. They've built cars and everything else. Mm -hmm. Esperante. And so I took a, a driving school there for a week um, after my... SCCA license lapse when I didn't actually do a, a season of racing <laughs> and got it again uh, through there. And then I uh, went to two more past that uh, eventually. 
I thought, well, let's let's take this another step. Maybe I need to do something different. So I went to Jim Russell Racing School up in um, Canada um, because the promise there was they did you know, training for like formula drivers. So if you want to do open wheel, that was kind of like the place to go. So yeah. went up to Canada and uh, did hundreds of miles of uh, uh, laps that were needed in order to get an FIA recommendation letter to get an FIA okay. formula license. So went through all that stuff. And by that time, I think I'd been to like four racing schools and was doing all kinds of, you know, um, high performance driving events, but never really got any real racing experience under my belt. And then one day uh, I got a phone call from a guy I know at uh, IBM said, I got this really strange phone call the other day. Uh, there's a company uh, that's hired by Audi. Uh, they're doing some headhunting. They're looking for somebody that's got racing experience and IT experience. Would you be offended if I gave them your name and phone number? I was like, you've <laughs> got to be kidding me. <laughs> be offended. No, of course not. So. So my buddy, Alan, who I had known for years uh, working in the IT industry, um, apparently, you know, IBM being a big company, of course, they, they're going to go there uh, looking for folks. They figure, well, it's probably less of a needle in a haystack trying to find something mm. that works in the IT industry that's had some racing experience. And within, I don't know, maybe 48 hours of all that, I was on a plane down to Florida uh, and started doing some uh, testing at Moroso. Uh, with Champion Racing, who uh, had been contracted by Audi uh, to actually uh, run a racing team for them in North America and IMSA uh, in the American Le Mans series. Mm -hmm. So that started in 2005. Uh, that went on for like three years, but it all started from that. So the progression of so being interested in cars, going and getting a racing license, doing all kinds of, you know, nonsense uh, driving events and, uh, and getting different things led into that because, you know, people knew at that point within about five years of doing it, they're always hearing from me at that time. We didn't really have social media, right? So you have things like uh, your email list, you know, you'd send out to all your friends, you're like, here's what I've been doing, you know, kind of like we do on Facebook or Instagram these days. You know, just went, you know, spent a week, you know, doing a, a racing school where I've been in Connecticut doing, you know, driving events or down in Atlanta, right? And so they would, people like Alan had seen that and thought, you know, yeah, that might make sense. He, he's, he's in the IT industry and uh, he has some racing experience. Yeah, that's more circuitous than I expected. Um <laughs> And completely by accident, apparently. Yeah, um, was, yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, I look back on that. It was like it's such a weird coincidence. Uh, it's not yeah. anything that I had like specifically had a, an idea in my head that I would do ever. You know, be uh, so here I was, just a amateur guy. You know, just having fun with cars. You know, getting racing licenses and just playing around, having fun as a complete amateur and. Next thing you know, you get called by, you know, a big company. <laughs> That's a big brand, right? Audi. And, and they ask, they ask you to come and try out to be part of the team. At that point, they had the R8 champion racing. They had actually won as a privateer team 
um, which was pretty crazy because it's kind of unheard of, right? But sure. you know, the nice thing was they were equipped with an R8 race car and uh, probably one of the winningest cars in history of uh, Le Mans, right? Uh, that prototype, the LMP1 that they had. So it was a big deal there. Um, I mean, the Le Mans prototypes, that's the pinnacle of endurance racing, right? You know, it's obviously not Formula One. That's a totally different thing. And it's certainly not NASCAR, thank God. Yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to offend anybody. But, uh, you know, that's listening. That's into that stuff. You went to work on the race team and yep. helped develop the car. Being that you had never experienced it um, as a bystander or a spectator, what mm-hmm. was your first experience when you got there? Like, were you, was it what you were expecting? Did you not know what to expect? Um, oh, were you surprised by anything? All the above, uh, uh, clueless, right? So I had no expectations, and and everything was new and interesting, and everything amazed me at the same time. When I got asked to come down there, um, I found it interesting because they didn't ask me to do anything related to IT. Uh, I go down there, I put on a, a fire suit, and we start uh, racing the car around, and we're coming in for pit stops, and they're asking me to jump over the, you know, the, <laughs> the thing and go change tires and. And bodywork and uh, you know other parts on the car. Uh, I think what they were doing at the time is trying to, with all their team members, uh, figure out who can do what, and uh, you know see. Now, granted, most of the people that worked on the racing team were, uh, I mean that that was their job. They they had worked as mechanics, as you know amateur race car drivers and other things, and this is like what they did day in day out. Um, what I had been asked to come do was, in fact, you know, IT stuff. But what we realize, uh, or anybody that's worked in a racing team, which most people don't see, is behind the scenes, everybody actually has two jobs. Because there's all the work that happens ex- on any day except for race day. And then on race day, everybody's got one focus, and that is the car and the race and everything else. Mm-hmm. So, so say, um, you know, I'll just give an example. when. We would go to a race, you know, you'd be there effectively for a whole week. Now, the race is potentially only a couple hours, except for the longer ones that are, you know, whatever, three, four, six, twelve, twenty-four, 24, right? Uh, but the rest of the time, you're just working and preparing, you're testing, you're uh, doing other things. So on race day, though, then it kind of switches. You know, the engineers are stu- still doing their work. The race car drivers, of course, still uh, driving the cars. But the people who aren't necessarily doing their normal job end up on the pit crew. You know, if they're not rebuilding a car, you know, during testing or other things, when it comes time for race day, they're putting on a, a suit and, and jumping over the wall or, or whatever else. So when it came down to it, um, you know, on race days, I was part of the pit crew. They had two pit crews. They have behind the wall and they have over the wall. There's, um, I, you know, regulations are different these days, but uh, mm-hmm. back then uh, there was a certain amount of people that were allowed over the wall to do things, and they started, you know, to change that and restrict it. So you had a certain amount of people that would be behind, and they did certain activities, and other ones that would jump over. The work that I did for them uh, was related to the telemetry systems. So when uh, I first went down to Florida, did testing, worked at their facilities. Uh, you know, got to know the car, got to know the people, uh, did all kinds of things. They would relentlessly practice their pit stops. So, 
it would just be hours and hours of pit stop practice either on the racetrack or inside uh, the uh, champion motorsport facilities they'd take the race cars in they'd mock do pit stops so and um, they'd video this stuff and and look for you know how can we get better on time we had you know somebody there with the stopwatch they come in you know blow the whistle that you know put the car up on the the air jacks and then they take off the wheels and put them back on and then they would just do all these things in succession and time them uh, and that was one of the ways that the team was better than everybody else's because they just relentlessly practice 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 um, I gotta hand it to them they're just they're always going for perfection and you know obviously they did very well <laughs> with what sure. they did so there's something to be said for uh, that dedication that they had I think a lot of that actually was driven by the owner of the team and, and champion motorsports. That gentleman's name was Dave Mirage, who owned the um, uh, the dealership that was also there, the Porsche dealership, as well as champion motorsports. Um, rest his soul. Unfortunately, he's passed away now. But uh, um, yeah, Dave Mirage was just, uh, you know, I think his attitude towards things was uh, driving towards perfection and and driving everybody else to the to the same end goal so it, it showed up in everything starting from practice to the quality of um, the facilities and the cars and how things were maintained so it's pretty cool to be around that um, that environment where everybody was on the same page uh, that way mm -hmm. driving towards perfection and, and what they did and everything it was cool stuff yeah and i imagine that that thought process is probably what led Audi to to his team. He was able to run the team efficiently and effectively, and that's what they needed as a manufacturer coming in. That's right. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to think that a privateer team could actually outperform a manufacturer with all their resources, but that's effectively what they did. You know, that group and that team, I was a contractor, so I'd fly back and forth, you know, uh, my consulting gig that, uh, that I was doing at the time, which was totally unrelated uh, from a business perspective. Uh, but I would continue to go uh, down there. And then eventually uh, they invited me to go uh, to Germany and then to France. So that's where it kind of progressed. Uh, when they move away from the R8 platform, which is a petrol-based you know, car to diesel, the TDI technology, that's where things really picked up a bit. Uh, and from what I understand, because I kind of look at everything from a business perspective, really a business guy, I'm not, I'm not a race car driver, I'm not in this automotive world, but I could look at it from that as like, they were really working towards marketing. And so they effectively had a multi-year marketing plan and we're using uh, Dave and his champion uh, team here, along with Audi of North America to figure out how do we market this new uh, direct injection diesel technology and win the hearts and minds of the American people because quite frankly and sadly you know the American public and auto manufacturers weren't really a big adopter of diesel technology right uh, when yeah. I worked in Germany and other places in Europe it's just uh, the statistics at that time were just um, really uh, blew my mind is that they were saying things like well more than 50% of the cars that we sell are diesel. And you look here and so diesel's what, like single digits or something for yeah. points? I mean, I, I don't know. It's, 
we did well enough getting off of leaded gasoline to unleaded uh, back yeah. in the 70s or whatever. That's my understanding is that this whole thing with the racing team moving over from the petrol-based vehicles to the diesel-based vehicles was to help their marketing here in North America. And the German team hadn't been racing in North America, so they needed an American team with the logistics. And trust me, there's a lot of logistics around moving that many people and, and types of equipment and cars and trailers and stuff around. I think it's what the old adage is like, you race on Sunday, you sell on Monday, right? So, you know, they were getting every single race on television on both ESPN and ABC on Sunday. And that was it. It was continually in the, the public's mind. Here's Audi with diesel technology and it was winning races. During that time, then we were working in uh, Germany and France uh, because it was all new and interesting. And that's really where my part comes into it. I have been brought in to help with the you know technical side of things, uh, IT. Uh, the team at that point, I guess, didn't necessarily directly have that uh, expertise in-house. And so came in, went to Germany, worked at R&D. Um, you know, and some of these things, you know, there are weeks at a time and whatnot, go over there for weeks, work with the folks. Uh, I particularly worked with the people um, that were working with the Bosch um, telemetry system. So. Um, you know, not only on the car, there's uh, other systems, control systems that are using Bosch electronics and stuff, but also uh, the telemetry. So worked with the folks at Audi R&D, which was in Ingolstadt. Uh, Audi Sport uh, had its own location, and then then they had the R&D for uh, Audi and uh, potentially VW. I forget exactly what was all in that facility. I think you had you know kind of posed the question uh, to me prior to here, like. Well, what were they doing before and what did they move to from a telemetry systems perspective? You know, it's kind of a strange time, uh, technology continuing to evolve. Um, race cars at that time, oftentimes you wanted telemetry data, like what are all the sensors in the car telling you when it's out on mm -hmm. the, the circuit? So that, you know, the engineers that are sitting behind the pit wall can analyze that data and say, what do we need to change? What do we need to do? You know, either for in the race or the next race or after this practice session or whatever the case is. Oftentimes at that point, the technology was basically a memory card that looked more like a uh, Nintendo cartridge or something, right? That okay. you know, was inside the unit and then the car came in, somebody go out who's on pit crew, pull that thing out, stick another one in, and then they get that data to the engineers that would then analyze it before it came back in again when they did the switch over to the R10 is the introduction of Wi-Fi. So <laughs> that's where they started like, okay, well, we can put a transmitter in the car, but then we still need to figure out how to get it back. Effectively take a box with a pole with uh, an antenna on it and go stick these things around the track with batteries in a box. And it would grab the data as the car would get close enough to these around the track and then send the stuff back eventually. And then once it got to uh, the pits, uh, that was great for the people that were working you know, in, the, uh, in the pit lane, looking at the data coming in, but the real value was going back to the engineers. Uh, so when we were in races, um, they'd send all these engineers uh, from Germany to the United States. Uh, we'd have an engineering trailer that we put together that had, you know, like a server and all kinds of hookups for all their laptops and everything else. And 
we would transmit the data from down in pit lane uh, to uh, that engineering trailer. There, there was some concerns potentially around, you know, like they were seeing in F1 with, I don't know if you'd call it a corporate espionage or something else. Would somebody be able to get access to this data somehow? Because sure. people didn't really understand at the time, well, it's wireless. Can you, anybody can get this information out of the air right. or whatever? Grab it out of the air. Uh, it was, you know, so, you know, it was all new and interesting to people at the time. Uh, one of the things that they had asked me to do uh, was figure out how to get that data from the, from the pits to the actual trailer uh, without it being uh, intercepted. And we used, interesting enough, kind of like old military technology, we used infrared. We got a, a receiver and transmitter, and we mounted them on poles down below and up on the engineering trailer, which would be out like in the parking lot somewhere. And then you'd have to physically get up on ladders on top of these trailers and aim these things because it was very directional. These infrared transmitters, companies would use these to do internet or network connections in between skyscrapers in cities. So they stick them at the top of the building. And if you had an office in this building, had an office in this, you'd be able to transmit the data back uh, okay. very reliably. Okay. Yeah. So I'm imagining a really big TV remote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, those transmitters, you didn't want to stick your head in front of one. It probably would have yeah. brains uh, like the microwave. Right. But uh, yeah, they're large devices. Did you go around the, um, to all the events? Like you were part of the, the race team, right? So yeah. you went yeah. to the various races throughout the calendar. Um, obviously Le Mans is the big one. Yep. How would you, how would you describe that to someone who's never experienced it before? Jeez, Lamar. Uh, any any endurance racing really? I mean, it's such a an odd duck in comparison to other racing. Uh, I you know uh, my opinion of it is a lot different. You know, having worked in that arena, uh, for me, uh, I think that endurance racing, whether or not it's uh, you know twenty four hours of Lamar or even the ones that they have here in the States or in Europe with their series is uh, you probably heard this before. So I'm repeating a lot of things that are out there and the way people describe these things, but it's really a marathon uh, compared to shorter races. Uh, for me, it's like, you know, they're, they're really challenging the endurance of not only the cars, but the drivers. Now, granted something like the 24 hours of Le Mans, uh, those guys are switching out with multiple drivers and stuff, but it's not like they're having a walk in the park on a Saturday because they're yeah. they're in the car for a few hours and then they have to rest and then it just goes for a whole day, right? So, you know, your ability to sleep and, you know, get nourished and everything is not exactly the easiest. But for the cars, I mean, can you imagine, you know, just taking your normal car and putting it up to full revs on the road and then just keeping it there for a while, right? I mean, imagine what that does to a car, let alone sure. pushing it, you know, nonstop, you know, for six, 12, 24 hours. Uh, so it's a really good way to test your car um, uh, from a manufacturer standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. um, I saw it and my personal opinion of it is that it was a really good opportunity for R&D because I was seeing what they were doing and I saw it from behind the scenes and 
all the engineers, and you're talking about people with doctor in front of their names and PhD behind it, uh, you know, the guys that actually developed the engines, uh, developed the suspension technology and whatever else. These are the guys that are coming from the R&D and, and coming to the races and looking at the data and everything, you know, from an R&D perspective. They were taking the new technology and really putting it to the test. I mean, what other way can you imagine getting real-world results of new stuff that you wouldn't dare put into a production vehicle until you had the opportunity to test it and see whether or not you were mm -hmm. making a big mistake or not? Um, so R&D, I think, was um, really the heart of all this. Uh, and with the diesel technology, the TDI, R&D, uh, I think, is really where it's at. And then there's the marketing aspect that I talked about before. Of course, if you're sure. out there racing, the expectation is people are going to see you and say, oh, look at this brand, this type of car, whatever it is, and how it does, you know, getting your folks on the podium uh, obviously <laughs> helps a lot, right? You get, you know, in into, um, you know, social at the time, as, you know, the press. Um, I think the other thing is that there's just so much more to it than just the cars and the drivers. It's all the work behind the scenes, which I got to see too. The amount of work that goes into strategy, you know, and teams when they show up at each of these events, you know, they just have meetings after meetings of, you know, strategy sessions, figuring out. Okay, so now we took the car and we tested it. And, um, you know, sit around and figure out what are they going to do with fuel strategy? What are they going to do with their tire strategy? What are they going to do with, you know, switching out the drivers? How long is one going to be in versus the other? Who's going to um, take take the car first versus last? Uh, who's going to run the fast laps versus the ones that conserve fuel and everything else? It's just there's so much involved in it. It's just really kind of crazy uh, when you see it all and you think, well, the people on the other side of this that see this stuff on TV or in the stands, you know, they just see, you know, the race happen. Um, what goes into it and the amount of time and effort with all these people, it's such an amazing orchestration, uh, very complex, um, not something that I could pull off, even having seen it for years, being in it. Uh, but it, that's what goes to show you, it really takes a, a really great team with good leadership and the right people in it to make that happen. You were mentioning strategies uh, when they f went to the diesel. Um, a lot of people who may not know would assume that everything would be the same. It's just a different engine. But if, if I remember correctly, they were forced to use a smaller fuel tank because obviously diesel has a fuel economy mm -hmm. advantage. Um, is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. There was a lot of different things. Uh, I mean, granted, even without the diesel technology, you know, IMSA with um, their regulations, I mean, things, you know, in racing, everybody knows uh, as the regulations change, manufacturers and even at the amateur level and stuff like SCCA, everybody grabs the yearbook, you know, the, the rule book every year and they try to figure out how can I maximize within what the rules are to get my advantage, right? And the race teams in the professional arena do the exact same thing. You know, it's like you go to races, um, and you've got restrictions on how high the car can be off of the ground and, you know, measuring things like the skid plates and uh, other things like, okay, well, this car is too powerful with this type of engine, so we're going to either restrict the air intakes or we're going to put lead weights in it or whatever it is. They would do all these different things to 
try to equalize the field as much as they could. There's an argument to be made there, right? If, if a manufacturer really does develop a, a great new technology, do you really, should you really be penalizing them for producing, right. you know, R&D, you know, creating something new that's going to benefit the rest of the automotive world? You know, what does happen? They get an initial advantage. People complain. <laughs> Uh, you know, the governing body reviews it and they figure out a way to kind of normalize the playing field, right? Um, you know, we can look back in history for Audi, right? When they first started uh, uh, campaigning all-wheel drive cars and, you know, all their boosted engines back in the days and we're just circling fields of cars and everybody complained about it and eventually, you know, got banned or whatever else. I think they actually made an ad slogan out of that when they introduced quattro to the rally scene uh, i think one of the competitors said it was an unfair advantage and then they actually used that in their marketing materials a few years later right and you know you saw the the there's an old audi commercial where it's climbing the ski lift or not a lift but um a ski jump ramp oh, ski jump. it's climbing it and it, they said unfair advantage or something like that so that's exactly right like you know ingenuity and innovation are things that drive motorsport among other things and right. there's there's a balance between having it to be competitive but also allowing for the innovation yeah i think that's absolutely key i mean you can look at formula one for that you know arguably that's the pinnacle of technology and everything else um, granted i don't know how much of that actually makes it like into the production vehicles where i see the difference between F1, which is amazing for what it is and what they've done with that for years, endurance racing, I think, is um, more closely related practically to production. You know, what you see out there, there's a purpose for it that eventually those technologies that get tested and used in the racing environment will make its way into production vehicles. And that's my perspective, having worked with them and seeing what they were doing. Uh, when you talk about telemetry, there's just so much data. <laughs> I couldn't believe how many sensors they would stick on a car for everything. You know, it's yeah. not just the engine, but all kinds of different aspects of the engine as, as, as it was getting data, uh, all different parts of the suspension, you know, and all the environment, uh, you know, that's going around there too, let alone, you know, what the tire manufacturers were doing. They had somebody dedicated to them full time, you know, in the races, but uh, offsite, you know, developing uh, stuff for them. So really interesting, everything that goes into it. Yeah, I would agree that some of the technologies that endurance racing has created are more relevant than some of the Formula One stuff. Um, for example, I'm not sure how closely, if anything, you follow Formula One, but what they're changing the rules for 2026 engines, and they're removing the the heat ab absorption portion of the the power unit so mm. there's between most teams have a split turbo where they have a compressor and a turbine on opposite ends of the engine mm. and in the middle is on the shaft is this part that i don't know how it does it but it takes the heat from the engine and stores it kinetically and then when you're off throttle it keeps the turbo spinning at the same RPM so that you don't have any turbo lag. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so complicated and expensive. Mm. Um, 
that's actually one of the reasons Audi has gotten into Formula One in a few years. They're starting to develop an engine for that, but they're removing that part of it because it's not road ve- road relevant. Right. Because to to introduce something like that into a road car, it would be exorbitant. Like it wouldn't make any sense at all. So, um, I think you're exactly right. Like Formula One is the pinnacle, or has been, and they are always developing things. But you know, it's not always road relevant in some. Aspects. You're right. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. There is that. They've got really crazy ideas and technology that they're employing, but what it applies to may only be for the purpose of winning a race under Formula One rules, and not so much yeah. something that could eventually be translated into a road-going vehicle where you could get a commercial advantage, you know, uh, out there. So yeah, it, it's different purposes, but yeah, it's exciting to see that um, you know Audi uh, is, is going to give it a go. Yeah, and they're actually building their own engine too. So it's not like, um, you know, Aston Martin and Alfa Romeo are currently in the sport, quote. Yeah. But they're just title sponsors and things like that. And they're actually rebadged engines from, or they are engines from another manufacturer. But um, I guess back on track with road cars, since we're kind of migrating that way again. Sure. Tell me a little bit about the 599 and what it's like to as an experience with that car's like, because it's definitely not a very common car. Oh, no, definitely not. Um, when it, they first developed that and sold it, uh, it's a ridiculously expensive car. But like with a lot of those things, um, it's always best <laughs> to buy them. If you're somebody that can't buy them new, wait until it hits the bottom of that depreciation curve. So, you know, I, I don't really know much about that car at the time, nor do I think that I ever even looked at one because those were just unobtainium when they came out like in uh, 2007 and 2008. It's a front-engined you know, V12 car. It's a very classic uh, style for a Ferrari. You know, it goes back to their heritage. Um, and at the time that it was sold, it was effectively the most expensive thing that you can buy. I think they were selling somewhere 350000 or so and if you can even believe this, well, these days it's much more believable seeing what people are doing now. But at the time, people were paying like 100k over list for these things because mm. it was, you know, uh, kind of the, the top of the line. Um, you know, you're seeing it today, right? I mean, uh, with the car market being what it is, what people are having to pay 100k over on Corvettes of all things, it's like, yeah, yeah it's crazy, right? So I mean, I've tried to buy a new Honda Odyssey recently and <laughs> Honda dealers are trying to charge $8,000 more. It's ridiculous. So. I saw, I don't know if you're not to get off topic, but mm-hmm. uh, I saw somebody post recently, Johnny, Johnny Lieberman. He's a motor trend or was a motor trend editor. I think he still is. He posted a sticker that was in a window of a Mercedes AMG GT, I believe. Mm-hmm. And this, the list price was like, 363 ish somewhere around there and it said market adjustment 363 it was exactly double that's that's craziness but it's amazing what people that have got way too much money will do because they really want something so like oh yeah i'll just pay double for it because it's more important to me to have it than anything else i was on a journey of buying cars for engines and you know i had progressed up to that point at that point my last car that had the largest size engine was a BMW M5. I had a manual BMW M5. Uh, it was a 2010, so using that naturally aspirated V10, which absolutely sounded glorious. 
Um, yeah, I sold that car uh, specifically because I was ready to move on to you know, something with 12 cylinders. And I was looking around and, you know, there's a lot of different things actually that have 12 cylinders and I could have bought uh, a BMW, you know, like an 850 or, you know, gotten a, a old Jaguar or something. I, I think. Or a VW Phaeton. Uh, yeah, sure. Was that a W12 or something? I forget what. Yeah, yeah. All that. Yeah, so like two V6s or something. Yeah, I, I'd been a BMW guy forever, so I, I kind of played with that idea. But um, I was like, you know what? Uh, the problem is I had been spoiled at that point with uh, power. And so uh, at the same time that I had the M5 or shortly right before it, I also had like an E46 M3. If, anybody knows what that is basically a 2002 m3 and um i was i got bored with that car and had supercharged it i bought a kit you know put it together at home and that was fun and so i was like yeah i really don't want to go backwards at this point i had you know m3 with 600 horsepower i had a m5 with 500 horsepower um sounds great with straight pipes just an antidote there um, Which one, the the M3 or the M5? Uh, I don't know that the M3 could sound good no matter what you would do to it, quite frankly. Really? I must have put so many exhaust systems on that silly car trying to make it sound half decent. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but the E46 M3, I mean, you know, owners will you know, maybe agree or not, is that they, they sound pretty raspy. Uh, it's an acquired taste. So some people absolutely love that sure. sound. Uh, I I must have swapped out it must have been at least four um exhaust systems on that e46 m3 just trying to get one that one didn't sound raspy and then if it didn't sound raspy didn't drone all the time sure get it to the point where it actually sounded half decent once i had modified it a bunch and had changed out a bunch of things i finally got to the point where i had something and i can't even remember now it was probably like something as simple as a borla exhaust system uh, on it but yeah, the um, the the pursuit of uh, power and speed, I think, is what did it in for me. Because after uh, kind of tasting that level um, without going excessively, uh, that's kind of what the Reno wanted to stay in. So when I looked at mm-hmm. something with a V12 engine, I thought, well, if I'm going to get a V12, I mean, I should just buy a Ferrari. But that's not a decision that a lot of people make, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, go buy a Ferrari. So uh, I looked around and I thought, what's, what's the best bang for the buck? I mean, you could buy an older Ferrari, right? You get a Testarossa buddy of mine, Jeff has got one, another buddy of mine, Dave has got one. I mean, there's a great cars, manual transmission. Uh, but despite all the amazing looks and the interaction on the car and everything else, um, in the end, I, I just, I've got this thing for the power that you get with all that torque um, and whatnot. So that led me to, you know, the 599 because I could have got something maybe like an FF, which is also a V12 and, you know, arguably a bit more horsepower, dual clutch transmission, but it's a hatchback and, you know, maybe not the most elegant design. It's kind of like the BMW clown shoe cars. There's yeah. Uh, I love it or hate it, you know, kind of yes. crowds with those things. They're very divided, unlike some cars. So it's like, you know, you got people all across the spectrum. That type of car, it's like, you know, you're on one side or the other. Similarly, in the 
Ferrari community, apparently, you know, people are a bit divided on, you know, the people that like them like it toward the practicality of day to day, being able to put down the seats and carry stuff and all that stuff, and they're not so concerned about, well, first of all, they're not really concerned what people think, you know, yeah, but you know, more of like, how do I use it? And for yeah. me, I thought, well, I'm going to buy a V12. I, I really would want something that has a design that. I could relate to and like, and that's where it goes back to that 1969 Inner Mechanica Italia. And if you, I may have put a post maybe on my uh, uh, Wilkinator uh, IG account, my personal account about that car from uh, back in the day, but it's just a long sloping nose. And if you look at the way that thing looks, it's actually very similar to uh, the 599, both within the shape of the headlights and the grill and the long nose and everything. And that's what, you know, I saw that. I was like, you know what? I think that's the one. So I, I picked, picked it up. Uh, I do what most normal people do these days. I go and bring a trailer, <laughs> buy a car, right? Sight unseen, you know, looking at a bunch of nice pictures and whatnot. Yeah, that, that's, that's how it happened. Um, I've been pretty accustomed to buying and selling online up to that point. I think I, you know, prior to bring a trailer and cars and bids and, you know, P car market and all these other ones, there's so many different ones these days. Right. And I think I've translated right. on all of them uh, up until that point. I think I had sold like 17 cars myself on eBay, you know, of all places. Um, and uh, so I wasn't shy to, you know, buying sight unseen as long as you've got enough information at hand to make a you know relatively decent you know decision getting a ppi and looking at service records and all that stuff so mm -hmm. the story behind that one was um like it happens with uh, a lot of them i assume is that uh, somebody unfortunately uh, passed away had a bunch of cars in this particular case he uh, gave them to his daughter um come to find out that uh his uh his new wife wasn't real happy about that, that the cars had been given to his uh, biological daughter. So there's another story that goes along with that and some stuff that we've gone through yeah. since then. But uh, anyway, his, uh, he was living in L.A. with his new wife. His daughter was living in San Francisco. And, and her lifestyle and profession and everything else didn't really lend it to these types of cars. I think, you know, he had uh, like a Rolls Royce and he had this. 599. So anyway, I, I bid on that auction. I bought it. I proceeded to talk to the owner. Uh, she was a, a lovely lady, a psychologist. And she tells me the story of kind of what I was relaying there is that um, he had lots of nice cars, you know, but this one was his absolute passion, his baby. He, he, he took care of it uh, like he was his own child, blah, blah, blah. And apparently his new wife wasn't real pleased about that either. I was very happy to have gotten a car that was very well taken care of, uh, exceptional uh, condition. Uh, it had just been serviced prior to uh, it going on auction and stuff. So I got it. I brought it to the local uh, Ferrari specialist that's here. There's a couple guys here in Chester County that used to work at Algar. Anybody that knows anything in the local uh, Ferrari scene will know the two Tonys that work at, uh, you know, it's uh, a sweet area at Perfumante, which is down Boot Road in Downingtown. And uh, those guys looked at the car when it first came in, basically had them go through the whole car again, 
you know, give it an annual service. I, I said, well, just in case, let's just, you know, replace it. all the liquids. It doesn't matter what it is. It's a uh, fluid here, fluid there. So gear case, you know, transmission, you know, brake fluid, whatever the case is, just so we had a baseline going forward. And so um, it's been great. Um, the thing that I particularly like, right, that Enzo derived engine, uh, just the power delivery, uh, the torque that's there, uh, the sound, it's a bit um, uh, restricted from the factory, not only in the way that the headers are, but also the fact that it's got like two sets of catalytic converters. A lot of owners will swap one of those out that's not actually used for emissions at all. It's just made to keep it quieter uh, for the street. It also has valved uh, exhaust. Um, I had those guys at Scuderia actually disable the valving system so that it's actually straight all the way through, which sure. everywhere I go, it's probably the first question I always get asked, even from the Ferrari guys and whatnot is, is that the stock exhaust? Because it sounds so much different than everybody else's because it's had all the valving disabled in it. My neighbors love me, by the way. Um, <laughs> that being said, the the, the uh, Audi B10 Plus is an absolute monster in comparison on startup. But uh, yeah, yeah, that, they take before they settle down. They're they're definitely a little raucous. Yeah, I mean, I can you know, you're you can change it on the steering wheel, you know, normal versus sport mode. But when you first start up, there's nothing you can do on that thing to keep it quieter. Mm -hmm. So. Oftentimes, I'll just start it up in the garage, and once it's gone, I open it up and go out to like cars and coffee early in the morning. But the Ferrari, uh, the sound of that engine is just glorious, and you know, it goes up high in the revs, and um, yeah, I'm totally enamored by it. You know, it's not a mid-engine sports car. It's not like anything else that's out there on the road, and it certainly doesn't drive like one. I mean, it's a GT mm -hmm. car. Yeah, it's ridiculously um, comfortable. Yeah, I don't know. Probably a good road trip car. Absolutely glorious. Uh, I've never sat in a seat that was so comfortable before. You're like in a little cocoon in there. I love the way Ferrari does their seats. They yeah. like with the the horizontal pleating and everything. It's so classic looking, and yeah. your seats specifically look like they're very comfortable. So I believe what you're saying. Yeah, the cushioning in them and the the supple leather and everything else. Um, yeah. I think probably most people upgraded the seats. It was an option for these, uh, whatever, the 18-way sports seats or whatever. There's a base seat for that car. Um, you'd see them more in like the 06, 07 before they made the kind of like mid-model change in 08, uh, where things like the carbon ceramic brakes became standard, whereas for a couple of years they were optional. And so you look at those first couple of years, you have a lot of cars that are more of what you would consider a base car because they don't have a lot of things that the later cars did. Uh, but uh, very happy with the seats and the comfort. Um, cars um, just so comfortable to drive uh, and the sound's great. And when you're on the highway, uh, just the amount of torque that's available at any given time. Now, what I wouldn't really do with that car is try to take it around uh, the back roads, Chester County or on a, you know, a racetrack or something in its current mm -hmm. form. Now, you know, Ferrari has made multiple models of that car throughout the years. There's one that's got uh, a handling package. That, you know, they made a GTO. I mean, those are cars now that are worth 1.2 million in comparison to a 
what would be considered a you know a bottom of the barrel gtb car like i have which is like a million dollars less right and mm -hmm. i saw one actually on saturday for the first time in person there was a fca event so ferrari club of america did a, a grand opening for some businesses uh, locally you know went there and you know morning after cars and coffee down in northbrook northbrook i'd taken the r8 in the morning because i didn't really feel like taking that one it was wet out and took the 599 out to go to the fca event i parked the car and i go in you know people are getting their glasses of wine and they're you know <laughs> you know stuff that people do at like a ferrari event and i come back outside and there's a gto parked in front of my car in the parking lot like well there's a bit of a flex right there <laughs> i've got the gtb which is a you know, it's a very nice car but the one parked in front of mine which is now blocking me in costs a million dollars more and it's the exact yeah. same car but in a different configuration you know, the gto car did you ever think you'd have a poverty spec ferrari <laughs> I, I know well you go to these events and it, it becomes evidently clear of like where, where the hierarchy is on yeah things. Yeah, you, you find yourself able to, you know, get something and get an entrance into a brand or something, and and the rest of the people are just like, oh yeah, yeah I wouldn't buy one of those things. You know? mm -hmm. Well, and there's there's like the stigma that Ferrari will only sell you a certain car if you've never owned a Ferrari before, mm -hmm. and to get some of the other models, you have to have owned several Ferraris to uh, get to the yeah. privilege of own, buying that car. Yeah, the thing that I've come to find is like somebody like me that has bought one secondhand, you're not actually a Ferrari customer. They don't recognize right. you as anybody off the street. Oh, oh, you bought one used off of somebody else. Well, you're not really a Ferrari customer until you, you know, order one from them directly and go to the factory and do your delivery and do all this stuff. You know, you're not really a Ferrari customer. I don't envision myself ever being a Ferrari customer, but. Uh, I certainly uh, can enjoy, uh, you know, buying a car at the bottom of its depreciation curve, and you know, having some enjoyment. Right, the transmission that they have in that thing, which is a uh, single clutch. Sure. You, you have to get used to it, kind of like um, BMW's SMG type transmissions. It's not like Audi has with DSG or Porsche with the PDK or now dual clutch systems, both in the Ferraris and and the other cars. Um, it's a pretty visceral experience and it is fairly violent. You're not going to give it to your grandma to take the car down to uh, pick up the groceries or go to church on Sunday or anything in that car. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you really got to learn how the car works with that. What some people are doing now, and you may have heard or seen or something, you know, be it on social media, YouTube, whatever else, there's people that are taking those cars and getting the manual converted. Mm. Uh, reason for that is out of, you know, the thousand something cars, you know, uh, that are out there for any particular range of it. I forget exactly how many um, they've made of that, both U.S. and Europe. It's probably in the thousands. I, I frankly don't even know. The only thing that I do know is they only made 20 manuals out of all that. 20? 20 that made it to wow. the United States. I mean, I think there were a little more than 20. It might have been 30 worldwide. There's no real exact. There's numbers there's people that are trying to trace them to figure out how mm -hmm. many they really made um and document them because there's so few um like on instagram there's actually somebody that's doc documenting every and tracing every single serial number of these 
originally dated 599. So, of course there um, is. Yeah, I mean, there's somebody for everything, right? This, yeah. Everybody needs a hobby, right? So there's two companies in the United States that are manually converting them. There's also two different engineering approaches, and the school of thought is totally separate, and there's uh, you know diverse opinions about one being better than the other. Here locally, uh, I've been talking to the shop in Jersey that's done two of them. Uh, I met another owner here recently in the last two weeks that you know practically has the same car as me. Um, his is a, a little bit older, different configuration, but he had his manually converted um, this past year uh, from a company in Jersey. Uh, thing is that all these conversions, there's no, because there's so few of them made and they don't really share a lot of parts with the other cars, uh, getting the parts is, uh, you know, it's like unobtainium. Everybody's sure. having to manufacture things like the center consoles have to be just made from scratch for molds. You know, the shifting mechanism, the gates, uh, the bird cages, they call it, the, the shifting rods, all the stuff that goes into putting it together. Um, that's just the mechanics. The, the real issue with this 599 and converting it is in the electronics because right now, car as it is, thinks that it's got, you know, an F1 actuation and control modules and it's using hydraulics and all this stuff. And you effectively have to program all that stuff out and make it work properly. Uh, the way that the computer works with the transmission it's matching revs and dropping revs as you go up and down and stuff like that. It does not lend itself to work as a manual trans car, just changing out the physical portions mechanically. It sure. won't actually run properly unless you do programming. So there's only one company that does the programming for all these companies doing them. Uh, and it, I don't know, I think there's maybe like eight conversions in the world now uh, amongst the 20 manuals that made it to the US, the manual cars sell for like 400% higher than a base car, right? Uh, it's crazy, right? You can, you get a, you know, pristine base model car effectively for 200 or so. And whereas somebody that's got one of those manual cars is like $800,000. So it's the order of magnitude is huge. And then you get yeah. something like this GTO that I saw on Saturday. And that thing's Again, another 400k to 1.2 million. So um, it's amazing the disparity just between you know, the same uh, model car. So that's what I'm looking at at the moment um, to change the driving experience. Uh, the just idea of manually, you know, actuating, you know, a gated shifter on a V12 Ferrari with that much power doesn't really exist uh, as and available for most piece, people except for the 20 people that had ordered one that they allowed to come into North America and these people that have got them converted. So for me, that goes back to when I was making the buying decision. I was like, look, I could get something like a, a Testarossa or something else that has the manual V12, but it just doesn't have the power. You know, you know in some cases, depending on the car, you could be driving a V12 with half the power of the 599. And certainly not sure. the same sound and whatnot. You got cars like the 550 Marinello, which, you know, that's got a huge following. You have people with the 575s that came right before that that are manually converting them as well. This doesn't seem to that there was a lot uh, that were manual from the factory in comparison to the F1 trans ones. So 
that's where I am in my journey with that car is I think at the moment, you know, I got a good deal on that car. I'll bring a trailer. I got a nice car with uh, low mileage that was pampered by the previous owner. So it's in very good condition. I think I just turned like 8,000 miles on that car this, uh, maybe the last, this last week or something. So that's the next step for that one is sending it out. Unfortunately, they don't just give away those conversions. So, I mean, there's a, a pretty good investment involved there. So there's, again, like two camps. There's people, like they talk to people at like an event or something else. And like, ah, you're going to ruin the car. You know, yeah. it wasn't meant to be like that. Or oh, somebody else will say, ah, you just get to destroy the value of that thing, chopping it up, this, that, the other. And then there's other people that are like, that's uh, your car. Do what you want to with it, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, uh, I'm I'm certainly no purist by any means, uh, right. and I'm certainly not going to get invited by Ferrari to come buy a new car anytime soon. So, like, whatever. I'll just uh, so I, I think that's what I'm going to do with that car, and I'm hoping that you know, having been in one of them now that has been converted and seeing how absolutely smooth that you know that gated shifter is, and just it's, you know, being able to go through the gears, um, I, it, it's enticing. So, yeah, that, that's the plan, at least. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Mm -hmm. um, John, I appreciate your time tonight. It's been great chatting, hearing about the ins and outs of um, endurance racing and Ferrari ownership. And I feel like there's a lot more we could talk about. And just, I mean, we still have two other cars in your garage that um, are also interesting too. So yeah. um, maybe we'll have to have you back on again sometime, yeah, but no um, we're going to have to wrap it up for today. Uh, if anyone wants to follow you, they can follow you on Instagram, correct? Yep. Uh, you have Nero Daytona 599 and also the Wilkinator, which I'm sure there's a story behind that name. So <laughs> at some point I'll have to hear that story as well. Um, and one of these days I'll have to meet you up at some of the car events here locally, but um, again, John, I appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you very much. I uh, appreciate being invited.